This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 91, Christmas. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in, and Merry Christmas. The Bible says nothing of celebrating Jesus' birthday or how to do so. It's sad that so many Christians only celebrate their Savior when they are the ones getting the gifts. Still, we can rejoice in the Lord on December 25th as well as any other day. This week we will discuss preparing room for Jesus in our hearts, and not just when the day circled on the calendar. The real St. Nicholas and his evolution from bishop to cultural icon, how cold it really is out there in Satan's world, and takeaways from one of the games the Hammonds family has already unwrapped. Let's start with what I've been preaching. I don't doubt for a second that if the people there at the inn had known that the Savior of the world was going to be born in their presence, better accommodations would have been found for him. I can't imagine any other possibility. They couldn't possibly have known that that was the night. And so we excuse them, the people who were in charge of the inn, whatever that inn may have been, for not preparing better room. We do not have that kind of excuse. The birth of Jesus reminds us that he has come into the world, and there is either going to be room or a lack thereof in our lives, in our hearts, for what he offers us. Don't you think that the people back then would have made better accommodations if they had known? If that is the case, in fact, what does that say about us? Should we not be making accommodations in our lives because we know that he has come? And we're not talking about putting a nice little scene out in front of your house for a few weeks out of the year. We're not talking about going to church services every once in a while. We're not talking about dusting off your Bible once a year and and reading from Luke chapter 2. We're not talking about watching a Charlie Brown Christmas on television. We're talking about making Jesus the Lord of your life. When the angels proclaimed in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. The question goes out, is glory in fact being given to God? Are we honoring God because of what he has done for us? Are we among those ones that he favors? The response needs to be that we have done as the apostle Paul said of himself in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That the life that I now live, I live in faith, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's so easy for us to see that now. The people in Joseph and Mary's day couldn't have seen that. There's no way they could have. But we do. We see now that Jesus came into this world in this humble way and lived an humble life and died a humiliating death and was raised again on the third day so that we could acknowledge him as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's going to be up to us whether we do or not. Wouldn't it be sad if all of this took place and we could not find a place in our hearts? It may be a stretch for us to find a couple of hours in our week for him. Surely he deserves better than that. The Apostle Paul pushed back against this for a long period of time. He says of his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road that Jesus said to him on that occasion, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, as if he were a donkey pulling a cart and he keeps getting jabbed by somebody who knows better than the donkey does. 
and he insists, no, I'm going to do what I want to do, and he keeps getting jabbed, and he keeps getting jabbed. That's what Jesus is doing with us. He is urging us. He is chastening us to try to get us into the path that he has for us, to give up our life, to completely and totally surrender to his life, to make ourselves, as Paul writes in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, transforming our minds, allowing the Savior to come into our hearts and to come into our lives and take over everything. That's what he asks out of us. He does not ask for a small part. He does not ask for one day out of the calendar. He asks for everything. And that may seem presumptuous to you. You may not be prepared to do that. You may resist his will in your life. But still Jesus knocks. He perpetually knocks. Revelation 3 verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. There is always the implicit or explicit invitation of Jesus to allow him into our lives. Now be warned. This king is demanding. I don't know if you've ever had any house guests that just kind of took over your life and demanded everything in your refrigerator and demanded the remote control for the television and wanted to use your car all the time and things like that. Trust me, you have never met a guest as intrusive as Jesus Christ. He is going to take everything. But the blessing of having him in your life, the blessing of having him in your heart is so profound and so magnificent that surely anyone who understands who he is is more than welcome to give him any room that he wants, including the entire house. Write the deed over to him entirely. You can have it all, Jesus, just for the privilege of being in your presence, just for the privilege of acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. That is the request that he makes of us. And then he sits back and waits for us to respond. So what's your response going to be? Is Jesus going to come in vain for you, or will you open the door to your heart and give him everything there is to give? The choice is yours. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Nicholas of Myra, also Nicholas of Bari, also Nicholas the Wonder Worker popularly known these days as St. Nicholas, a real historical character. That's pretty much given exactly what he did, how much of the things said about him are real, how many of them are exaggerated, we'll never know in this life. It's reasonable to assume that a lot of stories that are almost 2,000 years old are probably blown out of proportion. We can accept Bible stories because they're inspired by God. We do not necessarily have to accept the stories about Nicholas. And some of them clearly are not true. There is a story that he found three children who had been murdered and pickled, and their murderer was preparing to sell them as pork in a time of poverty and famine, and he raised these children from the dead. I can safely assert that that did not happen. I'm confident of that. There's also a story that he was at the Council of Nicaea where he met Arius the heretic and slapped him in the face because of his heresy, because of his refusal to stand for the truth, and because of Nicholas's uncontrollable zeal. That may have happened. I'm prepared to accept that. There is a much more famous story that may be partially true and partially not true. In fact, I suspect that's probably the case 
a story of a man who had three daughters for whom he could not provide dowries. And this essentially meant in that culture that they were going to have to be sold into prostitution. And Nicholas found out about this and wanting to remain anonymous, he climbed up on the roof in the middle of the night and dropped a small bag of gold down the chimney of this man's house where it happened to land in the stocking of one of the girls who did not have enough money to be married. The stocking had been hung there by the fireplace to dry out for the night and the gold just happened to land right there in the stocking. Clearly, he's a remarkable individual, a man who did great things and did them in the name of Jesus Christ. Whether he's right in the sight of God, whether he was truly one of the faithful, that's for God to judge, obviously. But I think he's a good example of the way we treat heroes. I don't doubt that there was a character that, for instance, Beowulf was ultimately based on. There does seem to be a character that King Arthur was based on. There may be some other heroes of antiquity, even someone like Hercules, for instance, who may have actually had some actual person out there that people wrote stories about, and they grew and they grew and they embellished and they embellished, and before too long, you've got someone who was barely human at all. I don't want us to do that with our heroes. I think that it's much more healthy for us, especially with regard to Bible heroes and heroes of faith, for us to accept them for who they are. There are men that I have known in the flesh. There are certainly men that I have known of who did remarkable things, who stood for the truth, who no doubt contributed heavily to the salvation of any number of souls, hundreds of souls, if not thousands of souls, and yet were, although heroic in some ways, certainly flawed. And the Bible treats heroes very fairly, it seems. In fact, sometimes almost to an extreme. We see almost as much negative about David's life, for instance, as we see positive. We see lowlights of Abraham's life and Moses' life and Noah's life, almost in such a fashion as to seem unnecessary, almost to specifically tell us that the heroes that we have are flawed, that they are if you'll pardon the expression, only human. That may not be a bad exercise for us. It may be appropriate for us to spend quality time looking at the people that we honor and acknowledging, deliberately acknowledging, that they are not perfect. We have one hero who is perfect and always will be. No one else is going to measure up to that standard. We imitate those ones, like the Apostle Paul, who imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. And the closer they are to Christ, the more we can lionize them. But we need to be careful about painting our heroes in two broad strokes for us to be so enamored of their character, so enamored of their legacy, that we become unreasonable about such things. And that's not just people who lived 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse number 17, for instance, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while he is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. You honor an elder, obviously. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. So clearly we have respect for these people. We go the extra mile to believe in them. But the text also says in the next verse, verse 20, publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. And I think he's talking about elders still in this verse. Don't be so enamored of an elder or a preacher or some writer or blogger 
that we refuse to acknowledge anything that's wrong. We have known of men in the past who let us down, and we were hesitant to believe that, hesitant to believe that they were weak in the faith, that they had denied the faith, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we should be giving the benefit of the doubt, waiting for two or three witnesses to come forward. But when they do come forward and it becomes evident that our heroes have let us down, we remember who human heroes really are. We accept their positive influence and we emulate that. And we also accept their weaknesses and their failures and we avoid that. And we allow God to be the judge of who is right and who is wrong, sorting out the sheep from the goats in that uh, judgment scene, which is to come. Let's not become so idol worshipy, if you will, of these humans that we forget they actually are humans. Jesus is our hero. Let's keep our eyes on him. And if other people can help us keep our eyes on him, so much the better. But there's only one Lord and Savior. There's only one perfect individual. Never forget that. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Let me say this first of all. I do not believe that one woman in four who goes to college is going to be sexually assaulted. I don't believe that. A lot of people do. And to the people who send their children to college anyway, send their daughters to college anyway, believing this, I suggest to you that you are either a liar or a monster. Obviously, it happens, and we regret that, and we condemn that, and we want to stop that. But the idea that it's some kind of rampant, wholesale problem, there is no evidence to support that at all. So I'm not a fanatic on that side of the spectrum. But let me say this. I am thrilled that I have not heard, baby, it's cold outside very much this season. Maybe it's because I have been home a whole lot more than I normally am this time of year. I'm not in the shopping malls. I'm not in the elevators. I'm not turning on the radio. And I don't doubt at least partly that's the case. But maybe our society is finally coming around to the idea that this is a horrible, horrible song, a song that downright celebrates date rape, a song that says it's perfectly okay and even somewhat funny if a man refuses to take no for an answer, continues to feed his date one drink after another, more and more alcohol, perhaps even more than alcohol, depending on the way you want to read a couple of lines in that song, so that she will agree to have sex with him. That is completely and totally inappropriate on all kinds of levels, and it's high time we got rid of that. Rant over. Deep breath. Having said all of that, I want to take the idea of baby it's cold outside and kind of turn it on its ear today. I want to talk about the cold of hell. I want to talk about the cold of the world and about a respite from that that Jesus offers. It really is cold out there. It is bleak. It is hopeless. It is dreary. It is endless. If you persist in living your life outside of Jesus, there is nothing but despair for you. It may seem in the moment that it is pleasant. It may be pleasant in the moment, depending on what you value. I'm not blind to the draw of sin, 
I'm not blind to the power of persuasion that the devil is constantly demonstrating in my life too, and certainly in the lives of people out there in the world. But when it comes right down to it, the devil has nothing to offer you, and Jesus has everything to offer you. It's tragic that so many people choose the cold and the dark instead of the light. There's an extended metaphor given to us after the discussion that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about how people have preferred the darkness to the light. That's why they run away from the light. That's why they reject Jesus. That's why they reject truth, because they don't like the truth. They like the darkness. They have trained themselves to love the darkness, to love the cold, instead of the warmth that Jesus provides. He bemoans this fact toward the end of his life as the last a week or two of his ministry begins in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, comparing himself to a mother hen who would love to have her chicks come and rest safely under her wings, and they just refuse to do that. It's easy for me to cast aspersions. It's easy for me to say, you ought to know better than that. Clearly, I'm in the minority. There's no question about that. Most people have chosen to reject Jesus. Most people have chosen to live in the cold. I think ultimately the reason is Jesus appeals to something that is different. He appeals to a different side of our character, a different side of our psyche than the devil does. There is a physical appeal, a carnal appeal that is real, and there is an intellectual, a spiritual appeal. The first 10 chapters really of Proverbs, especially chapter 9, lays this out in stark contrast. These are two lifestyles. They're portrayed as two women that are chasing after this naive young man, and they both offer their calls. And the woman of wisdom encourages him to come and learn and grow and be safe and be prosperous and think long-term, think about what she can offer him in the big picture. And the adulteress or the foreign woman appeals to him in completely different ways, and usually not in the subtlest ways either. Come and and enjoy my physical pleasures. I will make you feel good about yourself. I will flatter you. I will feed your carnal nature. I will make you feel wonderful in the moment. The problem is, the more you are on that side of the spectrum, the more you're inclined to listen to that kind of appeal, the more you will listen to that kind of appeal, and the more inclined you'll become to continue to listen to that kind of appeal. Now, the the cycle works the other way, too. The wiser you are, the more inclined you are to listen to the woman of wisdom, which makes you more wise, which makes you more inclined to listen to the woman of wisdom. It tends to perpetuate itself. You start making good decisions in your life, you will more likely continue to make good and better decisions in your life. That's the way that this works. Jesus steps in at the crossroads here and says, this is the way you need to go. This is better for you. This will feed your spirit. This will lift you up, not just in your own eyes, that's easy, anybody can be flattered, but lift you up in God's eyes, empower you, ennoble you in a real and profound way. Choosing the devil's darkness over Jesus' authority is what sinners have always done, even before Jesus had walked the earth, long before Jesus walked the earth. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and following reads, For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell, and delivered them in chains of utter darkness, and be kept for judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, 
distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. Let's not be mealy-mouthed about this. Horrible, horrible things are in store for those who live outside of Jesus' rule, such as always been the case. If you do not come under his shelter, then you are condemned. He who is not for me is against me, Jesus says. If you have not chosen sides with Jesus, if you have not come under his shelter, then you are under his condemnation. It need not be that way. You should embrace the things of Jesus. It may not be a natural thing. It may not be what your neighbors are doing. But by doing so, by choosing a life of morality, by choosing a life of decency, a life of submission, a life that embraces Jesus' greatness rather than seeking your own, you can have everything that heaven has to offer a child of God. And none of it is available to anyone who does not. We read in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are in Jesus. That means if you're in Jesus, you get everything. And if you're not in Jesus, you don't get anything. You don't want to be in Satan's cold. You don't want to be left out of the warmth and vitality and love that is available in the grace of Jesus Christ. So embrace his grace. Embrace his authority. Come in from the cold and allow him to give you the shelter that you need and ultimately the reward that he promises to all those who are faithful. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. Or not hearing, as the case may be. This is what I've been playing. Newsflash. Brace for impact. The Hammonds family got board games for Christmas this year. I know, just difficult to recover from the shock on that, isn't it? I would like to share one of them with you, one that has particularly struck a a chord with our family, a game called Celestia. You're all literally in the same boat. You are in a ship that flies from one celestial city, one cloud city to another in this this land of Celestia, apparently, something like that anyway. The the theme is a little bit vague, but there is literally a ship that you put your little character into. It's really pretty amazing, a 3D thing, and you just go from one island to another. And you rotate being the captain. And you have a hand of cards that represent certain expectations that are going to be asked of you at the various island stops. And if the captain has the requisite cards, then he can advance to the next stop. And if he doesn't, then everybody who is left in the ship has to go back to the beginning. Well, everybody has to go back to the beginning. And you can duck out at any time, unless you're the captain. The captain has to go down with the ship, obviously. But if you are not the captain on any given turn, you may decide, because you don't have any confidence in the captain, because you don't have any confidence in the ship or the mission or whatever, you can decide to get out. And if you get out, you will get a card for that particular stop that is bonus points, and you're trying to accumulate 50 points. The first one to 50 wins. And the higher you go, the better cards, presumably, you're going to get. It doesn't always work that way, but usually it does. And so you want to stay in the boat as long as you can, and you want to root for the captain. You want to to have confidence in your captain. And so since everybody is together and everybody has cards that they can contribute to this mission, it looks like you're on a team. 
it looks like you are backing one another, encouraging, and occasionally you'll say encouraging things to one another. I believe in this, Captain. I, I have confidence in the, this mission. We're, we're going to be fine. And, and because the more people you keep in there, the more captains you're going to have and the more cards you're going to have, and presumably at least the further up the chain you're going to be able to go. In reality, though, it is anything but a cooperative thing. You are absolutely selfish in this game. There is no cooperation at all in this. As soon as you think it is not in your best interest to stay in this boat, you get out of the boat and you collect whatever kind of reward and you go home. And if it means hanging your captain out to dry, then hang him out to dry. That is the essence of a game. And really, that's the essence of pretty much all games, except for the cooperative ones. Usually, we are trying to win. That's why you play the game is so that you can win. And being selfless generally doesn't get that done. Generally, selfishness is going to be what wins the game. What is bad for somebody else is good for me. And I bring this up in the in the spirit of the holiday season, which may kind of seem counterintuitive. We ought to be look, thinking about, about sharing and supporting and, and encouraging and that sort of thing. But I think it's worth noting here that lots of times the efforts that we make supposedly to encourage other people are actually self-serving. We are actually only helping ourselves. There is such a thing as genuine generosity. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, we are given a word from Jesus. It's not recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but Paul says by inspiration that he told us it is better to give than to receive. If you've ever wondered where that expression came from, this is where. Jesus told us that. Do we genuinely believe that? Do we genuinely take joy in giving? It's not just giving in the short term so that I get something in the long term. It's giving because we want to give, giving because we are giving people, giving because we see the example of Jesus who gave everything and received nothing for what he did. That is our example. Are we genuinely emotional about what happens to other people, whether positive or negative? Do we rejoice with those who rejoice? Do we weep with those who weep? Do other people's lives impact us? It's tougher to grasp what's going on in somebody else's life. But when we don't try, when we make no effort to rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep, or we give up on it very quickly when it seems like we're not getting anything out of it, what does that say about our character? What does that say about who we are trying to be in this life? Are we willing to be these people who serve when no one is looking? Jesus talks about that as the, maybe the hallmark of what service actually is about the one who does not let his left hand know what his right hand is doing. Matthew 6, verse 3 and 4. Let's try to take this spirit of generosity, the spirit of charity, the spirit of selflessness into the world all the rest of the year because we are all in this boat together, especially brothers and sisters in Christ in the boat that Jesus has provided for us. But to a certain degree, really all of humanity, we are sharing a planet and we need to work together to make the best out of this. And what more can we do to give to our fellow man than give them the gift of Jesus Christ, give them the gift of salvation that Jesus provides for us? We can provide an environment where in this boat that we inhabit, we are cooperating, we are working together, we do genuinely care about one another. When we can come to a complete and totally harmonious relationship with one another as we wait before Jesus Christ, what a marvelous experience that can be. Jesus makes it possible. Let's make it a reality. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. 
You have been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.